Well, all right. Well, today we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. We've been working through this chapter by chapter at, I guess you could say, a medium pace. Think of Dr. T were here, we'd probably still be in chapter four or five. <laughs> Moving a little bit quicker, but not too quick. And today we're going to pick up from where Pastor Enro left off last Lord's Day. Our text today will be John chapter 12, and we'll start reading in verse 36 just to give us some context, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. In this John chapter 12, we'll start in verse I'm sorry, verse 32 is where we'll start reading. This is Jesus speaking. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now he said this to show by what, what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed therefore they could not believe for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him nevertheless many even of the authorities believed in him but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my, on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given him, him uh, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, Lord, we come before you with open hearts and minds, eager to receive your divine wisdom and guidance through your word. Lord, we ask that you prepare our hearts now to be receptive to the message that will be shared. Help us to set aside any distractions and concerns so we may be fully present in this moment. May you open our ears to hear your truth and be transformed by your grace. And may this sermon today bring clarity, comfort, and conviction. And may your Holy Spirit move us to live more closely aligned with your will and purpose. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you'll notice in your Bible, there are nine more chapters to the Gospel of John. So we are certainly not at the end of this Gospel. Yet, if you were listening closely to what we have just read in chapter 12, 
there is an end spoken of here in this chapter. Now, why do I say that? Again, look at what happens. After Jesus states that he will be lifted up from the earth and will draw all people to himself, indicating by what kind of death he is going to die, the crowd answers him, well, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then notice how Jesus answers them. He doesn't answer their question directly. The question was, who is this Son of Man? And he answers, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, is Jesus just being difficult here? Is Jesus just being hard to get? Well, no, of course not. Read John chapters 1 through 11. For the last three years, Jesus has testified over and over again concerning his identity and his mission. Jesus had performed sign after sign. In fact, John's going to go on to say at the tail end of this gospel that there are also many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written down. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding. He healed the son of the royal official by just speaking the words. He healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He fed 5,000 men, and when you include the women and children, possibly 10 to 20,000 people altogether with just five loaves of bread and two fish. He healed the man born blind, and he raised Lazarus from the dead after leaving him in the tomb for four days. As we have seen all throughout this gospel with these miracles, Jesus then would often teach about his identity and purpose in conjunction with the miracles that he performed. And he wasn't just doing these things to put on a show. It's not a circus. These miracles were intentionally designed to reveal his purpose and his identity. And he did this over and over again for three years. And yet, as verse 37 states, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So it's not as though Jesus did not answer their question. He had already answered it time and time again through his ministry, but they would not believe. And so this time, instead of answering their, the question directly, he leaves them with a warning and then a command. The warning is the light is among you for a little while longer. So while you have the light, let's... Uh, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then John says this, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And this is why I say that there's an end spoken of here in John chapter 12. Something very significant going on here. Understand that Jesus' three-year personal public ministry has now come to an end. Everything that follows chapter 12 in John's gospel is Jesus spending time privately with his disciples. 
the public won't see Jesus again until he's arrested. Because Jesus has hid himself now from the public. And I think it's important to see that because what follows now here to close up chapter 12 are two sections from John that I believe are intentionally placed here by John in light of the fact that Jesus' personal public ministry has now come to a close. The second half of verse 36 down to verse 43 is all John speaking. And John is giving commentary on the unbelief of the Jews. But then notice what happens in verse 44. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, it says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And this goes on until verse 50. Jesus, in essence, gives a little miniature sermon here. But where did this come from? When did Jesus say the, these words? Where did he say it? And to whom did he say these words? I ask because we just saw in verse 36 that Jesus had departed from the public and hid himself from them. But now in verse 44, out of nowhere, Jesus cries out and gives this miniature sermon. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? Well, I think it will seem less strange once you understand the point that his personal public ministry has come to an end. We don't know exactly when Jesus gave this little mini sermon. John doesn't give us any details regarding it other than what he said. And so I think what John is doing here is this. Given the fact now that his personal public ministry has now come to an end, John takes this little miniature sermon from Jesus and intentionally places it here after Jesus has departed and hid himself from the public to act as a summary of Jesus' public ministry. And so to put it all together, when the crowd asks, who is this son of man, rather than answer them directly, given the fact that his three-year ministry had answered that question over and over again, he gives them that one last warning and command. And then Jesus departs and hides himself from them. And so John takes words that Jesus had uttered at some point and places them there in this spot as a nice summary now of his ministry. So that being the case, I think we really pay, I think we need to pay special attention then to how our Lord summarizes his own mission. Now, what about that stuff in between verses 37 through 43? Well, given that we are told in summary fashion what the mission of Christ was, in short, to save the world, verse 47, the fact that most of the Jews did not even accept Jesus as the Messiah raises an interesting question, doesn't it? And that is, well, did Jesus fail in his mission? I mean, just think about it. If God so loved the world that he gave his only son, chapter 3, in order to save the world, chapter 12, what are we to make of the fact that when Jesus comes and begins this mission, he starts first with Israel, and remember who these people are. These are the very people God had covenanted with to prepare them throughout their history for this very moment, and yet most of them rejected Christ. I mean, if they did not even accept Jesus, what hope is there for the rest of us? The rest of the world. Did Jesus fail in his mission? Did God have to resort to some plan B 
Is saving the world still the mission of Christ? Someone look out the door and say it doesn't appear that it is. So how do we explain the unbelief of Israel in view of Jesus' own summary of his mission? Can you see why this would be an important question for John to address, especially now that Jesus does not directly answer their question and now he's hiding himself from the public? And so now that Jesus' personal public ministry has come to a close, John closes this section with two, two parts. A summary of Jesus' mission from the words of Jesus himself, and then an explanation for Israel's unbelief in light of that mission. Now, as you can see, John deals first with the unbelief of Israel and then goes on to the summary, but I'm going to do it backwards. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because if we're right in understanding that this is Jesus' summary of his own ministry, we need to really spend some time here and understand what he's saying. This is very important. So first, let's consider Jesus' summary of his own mission in verses 44 through 50. And I'll read it again. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The first point I want you to see from this summary is the connection between Jesus and the one who sent him, that is God the Father. Notice what he says. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Beloved, we absolutely cannot divorce Jesus from God the Father. And we absolutely cannot fail to see the nature of who Jesus is. As our confession puts it so wonderfully, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons. Of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And we've seen this already in John's Gospel, haven't we? It's most clear in John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's a distinction. And the Word was God. He was in the, in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In chapter 5, after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and they asked why he was doing it on the Sabbath, he answered, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then in John chapter 10, 
after Jesus had stated that I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and they declared, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Beloved, we see that this gospel does not shy away from the fact that the Son is equal to the Father, and so neither should we shy away from that. In fact, it is essential to the gospel, to the mission. Paul would write to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see that, beloved? Jesus Christ is true God of true God. And here Paul says he's the exact representation of God, the exact image. God who is invisible is now seen in the person of Jesus. And even while you and I are made in the image of God, Paul here says that Christ is the exact image of God. Our larger catechism would go on to explain why our mediator should be God. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, to give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. But friends, he is not only true God of true God, but this Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time had come, took upon himself man's nature. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, says our confession, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, you see that? Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition, without confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? And so our catechism will go on to explain, after explaining why our mediator must be God, now asks, well, why is he also to be man? He was to be man that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons, have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. And then it would go on to ask, why is it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, 
and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature, right, the proper works of God, the proper works of man, might be accepted of God for for us and relied on us on by us as the works of the whole person. Paul would go on, I just read in Colossians, he would go on to say this this in verse 18. After explaining that Christ is the exact image of God, he goes on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. See, there's his humanity. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's humanity again. Again, beloved, it's so important that we get this right. There's no gospel without it. In Christ, heaven and earth meet. In Christ, divinity is reconciled with humanity. In Christ, God sustains and keeps the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. The human nature could not, it would not sustain that alone. Only God could do that. Only God could satisfy his justice. Only God could give worth and efficacy to his sufferings and his obedience and intercession. Only God can conquer all of our enemies and bring us to salvation. Yet, It is only in humanity that Christ could suffer and die. For God cannot suffer and die. It is only in humanity that Christ could be born under the law and then perform obedience to it. God's not under the law. And it is only in humanity that Christ could have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is now able to help those who are being tempted. And thus we have Jesus' words here in John 12. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I'll also add to this, and I've said this before recently, but it bears repeating. There is no salvation for anyone who thinks to honor God without honoring the Son. And I say this because you continue to see these comments and questions, especially on social media. Can a person be saved who either doesn't know who Jesus is or knows about him, or perhaps he knows who he is but doesn't honor him as the Bible honors him? You see this from a lot of Jews, for example, a lot of conservatives. See this from Muslims. The answer is absolutely not. When you strip Jesus of his honor, In true nature, you in turn strip God of his true nature. And you've created an idol. I don't care how nice a person may seem to be 
or appear to be, you know, I love God. Their God is a figment of their imagination if they are not honoring Christ. You get to the Father through the Son. And there's no other way. That's it. The second thing I want you to see from this summary now is the emphasis that Jesus places on the word. Listen carefully. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Beloved, just as it is crucial that we maintain the divinity of Christ as well as his humanity, And just as it is important that we do not divorce the Son from the Father, so as to suggest that a person can reconcile to God apart from the Son, so we must maintain the necessity of the Word of God. Just as it is important to understand that we cannot get to the Father apart from the Son, so we must understand that we cannot get to God savingly apart from His Word. And why is that? Again, <clears throat> there's a lot of talk on social media. I don't know, just go through these phases. I just see them as I'm reading on Facebook. A lot of talk about natural theology or natural revelation, or what sometimes is called general revelation. But we should never downplay general revelation if we understand it rightly. It is true, as our confession words it, that the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. As humans, when we created in the image of God, we cannot escape the feeling, the sense inside us that we were created by by a divine creator. We know there is a God. Everyone knows it. There's no such thing as an atheist, technically speaking. You don't have to argue with them to prove them the existence of God. They know it. It's built into our motherboard, if you will. When we think about ourselves as creatures, we walk around in this world and observe its beauty and its function. And then when we function in it, it is impossible to escape the conclusion that there is a wise, good, and powerful creator at work. And this is what we call general revelation. But there are two important things you need to understand about this revelation. First, this revelation was never intended to give us knowledge concerning God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So think about it for a second. Let's go back to the time of Adam. Adam was created innocent. Adam had no sin at first. Adam walked in communion with God. And so there wasn't even a need for salvation in the very beginning. Yet, general revelation still did its thing in revealing the goodness, power, and wisdom of God. 
through what was created. But even still, this general revelation revealed nothing about God's will for Adam and Eve. General revelation said nothing about the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it certainly did not forbid them to eat of the latter tree. God specifically had to reveal that information to Adam. And so even before the fall, general revelation was limited. It did not reveal God's will for salvation, for salvation was not even needed at the time. And it could not reveal God's will in general in terms of specific commands and duties. The word of God still was still necessary even then. And then when Adam rebels, thus creating the need for salvation, there was nothing in general revelation to inform, to inform Adam of God's will concerning salvation. Again, God had to come to Adam and Eve personally to reveal that. So general revelation was and is limited in its purpose. But then the second thing you need to understand about general revelation is how we relate to it now after the fall. As our confession goes on to explain, the fall of Adam has some serious consequences now on our state. It says, by this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And they, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. And from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Thus Calvin can write, Though experience testifies, he's talking about general revelation here, that a seed of religion is divinely sowed in all, scarcely one in a hundred is found who cherishes it in his heart, and not one in whom it grows to maturity. So far is it from yielding fruit in its season. Moreover, while some lose themselves in superstitious observances and others of set purpose wickedly revolt from God, the result is that in regard to the true knowledge of him, all are so degenerate that in no part of the world can genuine godliness be found. In saying that some fall away into superstition, I mean not to insinuate that their excessive absurdity frees them from guilt. For the blindness under which they labor is most invariably accompanied with vine, a vain pride and stubbornness. Mingled vanity and pride appear in this, that when miserable men do seek after God, instead of ascending higher than themselves as they ought to do, they measure him by their own carnal stupidity, and neglecting solid inquiry, fly off to indulge their curiosity and vain speculation. Hence, they do not conceive of God in the character in which he is manifested, but imagine him to be whatever their their own rashness has devised. This abyss standing open, they cannot move one footstep without rushing headlong to destruction. With such an idea of God, nothing which they may attempt to offer in the way of worship or obedience can have any value in his sight, because it is not him they worship, but instead of him, the dream and figment of their own heart. This corrupt procedure is admirably described by Paul when he says that thinking to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1.22. You see what he's saying? 
Even though we have this natural revelation because of our corrupt hearts and sin, even if we try to aspire to worship God, we're not really worshiping God because we create God in our own image. Paul would write, speaking of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see that? They have the truth. They hold the truth. General revelation. For what can be known, verse 19, about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Right? They know there is a God. They know there's a creator. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are not without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so you see that because of the spiritual deadness of man, because of his corrupt and sinful heart, even that which was designed to reveal God's power and wisdom and goodness gets perverted and suppressed by man because of their love of their sin. And in the end, they forsake God and create idols. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And thus we see now more than ever the absolute necessity of a special revelation. Something in addition to the general revelation, a word from God concerning his will in our salvation. And so again, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words. You see how he's equating himself with his words. You reject him by rejecting his words. You have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In John 3, we had read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And his Son came to do what? He came into the world as light, to illuminate a world of darkness, a world filled with people who love their sin and their rebellion, a world that knows that he exists yet suppresses that knowledge. And Jesus came to speak a word that was given to him by the Father, a commandment, and that is eternal life. And those who reject that word and do not keep it, that is, those who do not obey that commandment, will be judged on the last day. We have already seen and heard, if you think about it, an exact parallel to this summary by Christ here in chapter 12, back in chapter 3. Listen to this and see if you can make the connection here, the parallels. You remember Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can a man be born again? 
And Jesus answered them, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is, no one knows of these heavenly things. No one knows the will of the Father concerning salvation, but the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Are you hearing John chapter 12? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Beloved, that's the summary of Jesus' mission. So in it, we must understand Jesus' unique relationship with God the Father. We must understand his divine mission as the savior, savior of the world through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And we must understand the significance of faith and obedience in his teachings for obtaining eternal life. Now in closing, I need to say something about those verses in between, verses 37 through 43 that we've skipped over. Given that this was the mission of Christ, given that this was his purpose, how now do we explain the unbelief of Israel? If Christ came to his own first to bring salvation, how do we explain the fact that most of them rejected this Messiah? Did Jesus' mission fail? And believe it or not, there are preachers out there that argue that it did fail. So let me be very blunt, very clear here. In no shape, form, or fashion did Jesus Christ fail in his mission here. This is, there's no plan B. This was plan A. It was plan A all along. It's been nothing but plan A. As a matter of fact, the unbelief of Israel was the very means by which God brought the mission to fulfillment. I'll let that sink in for a moment. Think about it. If Jesus' purpose was to come to die for sins, and he clearly stated this was his purpose. In fact, in verse 27, he rhetorically asked the question, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Do I call it quits? And what was Jesus' answer? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. How in the world can you say that Jesus failed in his mission when he's telling you right here, this is the reason I came. I came for this purpose. And since that was the purpose, it only makes sense then that God decreed Israel's unbelief and hardness of heart toward Jesus 
which would in turn call for him to be murdered. Now, of course, they didn't want to kill Jesus in order for him to die for their sins. They were oblivious to that. They wanted him dead for other reasons. But beloved, recall the words of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so no, Jesus did not fail. In fact, their unbelief was the very means by which God brought his purpose to pass. So that's the 10,000 foot view, if you will, the overarching answer. But now let's ask this question. Let's zoom in a little bit and get a little personal. Why did most of Israel reject Jesus? What specifically was their problem? Well, we heard that answer back in chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And now add to that what John says here in chapter 12. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believe in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You put all this together. They loved the glory that comes from man. They loved their darkness rather than the light. And they didn't want to go into the light because the light would expose their evil deeds. They love their sin. They love their rebellion. They would rather play God and determine for themselves what is right and wrong, therefore only having to answer to themselves rather than repent and humbly submit to God's law and authority. And friends, think about that one for a second. If you cherish the thought of living life however you please, if you love your sin, then you're not going to have any place in your thinking of a need to deal with your sin. You're not going to have any place in your thinking that someone needs to appease the wrath of God on your behalf. It's just not even going to enter your mind because you don't see your sin as the problem. And if you do happen to entertain any thoughts about a Messiah... A king? What kind of king do you think they're going to look for? A king that's going to come and kick everyone else's rears, not mine. And isn't that what they looked for? They wanted a king who would come and defeat all of their enemies, and only them. They wanted a king that would come and, you know, go after the guys that were oppressing me and keeping me from living how I want to live. Instead of a king who comes and points the finger at you and says, you are actually your biggest enemy. You are actually your biggest problem. You are the rebel. You are the one that needs to be conquered. And this is why I believe John quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from two places in Isaiah. One is from Isaiah 6. And listen to what's going on in that passage. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And this is where John in quotes, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Beloved, did you notice Isaiah's response to seeing the Lord sitting upon the throne and hearing the seraphim crying out to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. What was Isaiah's immediate response to this vision? Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His immediate response was to realize his own sinfulness, his own uncleanness, his own unworthiness. He immediately recognized how unholy and sinful he was. And yet that would not be the response for most of Israel in Jesus' day. Why? Because they loved their sin, their darkness. And since their sin doesn't pose any problems for them, there's not going to be any place in their thoughts for the need of a Savior who would atone for their sins by his death. And thus you get John's other quote from Isaiah 53. Again, listen to these words, and I'll start in... 52 verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and in all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now this all sounds like great, great stuff, right? King's coming. He's going to restore us. He's going to redeem us. But again, who's the target here of the redemption? Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, 
For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, there's John, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And then this is where John quote, uh, quotes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he didn't have the glory of man or what they expected. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Not that other guy over there, for, for my transgressions, for me. I'm the rebel. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Again, there's your purpose, your mission. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the, right, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, many of those in Jesus' day could not recognize their long-awaited Messiah, even though he was standing right there in front of their face. They only saw a man of sorrows, a man equated with grief. They only saw a man who had no form or majesty that they should look at him and no beauty that they should desire him because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This Messiah didn't meet their expectations because their expectations were perverse on account of their own failure to understand their own state of depravity and rebellion against God. And so now I turn to you, 
and ask you, do you see it? Are you able to recognize this Messiah in his teachings and works? Are you able to understand the necessity of his death? And if you struggle to see it, I want to ask you, have you considered the depths of your own depravity and your own sinful rebellion against God? This text today is calling you for that purpose. It's calling you to believe in Christ, to recognize that faith in him is also faith in God, the Father who sent him. We also see in this text that he's the visible representation of the Father. By looking at him, his life, and his teachings, we can understand the character and nature of God more clearly. In this text, we see that we are to embrace the light. Jesus came as the light of the world, offering deliverance from spiritual darkness. And so as sinners, we should acknowledge our need for this light and actively seek it. And this entails turning away from our sin and embracing Christ. And fourth, we need to obey his words. Hearing Jesus' words is not enough. We must obey them because obedience is an expression of true faith. Fifth, we need to recognize the final judgment. When we reject this Christ, his word and his words, that carries consequences. There will be a final judgment where every person will be held accountable for their actions and choices. And six, we need to rely on God's authority. Jesus spoke with the authority given to him by the Father, and we need to recognize the authority of God's word and trust in him and his power and truth and allow it to guide and shape our lives. And then eight or seventh and last, we need to respond to this invitation of Christ. He's putting it out there. This is his goal. This is his mission. Here's the invitation. Repent and believe. As sinners, we are all invited to come to Christ to receive his forgiveness and experience new life in him. And so respond to this invitation with sincere heart and faith and desire to follow him. Let's pray.